from executive producer Isaac Saul. This is Tangle. Good afternoon and good evening and welcome to the Tangle Podcast, the place where you get views from across the political spectrum, some independent thinking without all that hysterical nonsense you find everywhere else. I'm your host, Isaac Saul, and this is part three, our third interview in the Tangle Reader interview series. And today we have Bradley Pierce from Liberty Hill, Texas. Bradley, thank you so much for coming on and sitting down with me. Hey, good to be with you, Isaac. Thanks. So before we get in, what I've been doing with everybody is uh, just reading very briefly the bio that you submitted in the Tangle form that, uh, you know, where your name was drawn from randomly. So this way, Tangle readers and listeners just have an idea of who you are and sort of come into the conversation with the same background info I have. So this is what you wrote in the in the Tangle form. You said, I'm a 40-year-old Christian, an attorney, a father of 10, a husband of one, pro-parental rights, anti-abortion, pro-self-defense, and also a homeschool graduate and homeschooling your children. Basically, every part of that sentence I'm interested to scratch at and hear from. (laughs) Uh, Before we jump in, I also want to acknowledge, like our last uh, part two interview, Miriam Stein, who I just got off with earlier today, she had been reading Tangle for two plus years. Uh, You have also been around for a while, so I want to acknowledge and thank you for that. Um, That's almost the entire time I've been doing this newsletter, so I very much appreciate your support and staying on our mailing list, as I'm sure I've written some things where, uh, you know, we haven't agreed in the past. Oh, well, I'm, I'm grateful to you for doing it. Uh, yeah. So a friend of mine introduced it to me a little over two years ago and said, Hey, you should check this out. It's a great place to kind of hear from both sides. And this guy's, you know, really fair about presenting that. And, um, and that's certainly been my experience since, since reading it. So I appreciate all of your work that you put into it and giving your take and, 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 you know, changing that take, you know, if things change and, and really being open with that and, and sharing your viewers questions and feedback. I just, I just appreciate your approach to it. Thank you. I really appreciate that too. Well, look, I, I mean, the first thing I have to ask about is 10 kids, man. Holy cow. What's that <laughs> like? That is a lot of kids running around. It's pretty awesome. You know, it's, it's pretty busy. Uh, my wife and I love children. We're eating each ourselves uh i just have one brother and she just has one sister so it's not like we come from a big family um but we we love children we think they're a blessing we're christians we think that they're gifts from god that everybody's made in the image of god and uh so we just trust god with however many we have and he's decided at least for now that that number is 10. wow amazing man mazel tov that's a it's a beautiful (laughs) thing i can't imagine the pack so give me some ages here what's the the youngest and the oldest in that what's the the span you guys have well this will make you this will make your eyebrows raise even higher so our oldest is 11 and uh, our youngest is coming up on one year Um, but we have two sets of twins in there wow Um, so they're all they're all still fairly young but they definitely keep me on my toes all right, I'm going to give you one shot at this. I want to hear the 10 names of your children off the top of your head because I'm not convinced that you know all of them. <laughs> Let's hear it, baby. <laughs> wow, amazing. Uh, I, that's really cool, too. I have um, I have a in my family. My brother 
just had a baby about six months ago. My first niece on my side, my oh, wife has, has two nieces. Yeah, thank you. A really amazing experience to be holding somebody who's like, you know, my grandmother's blood. It's it's totally cool. Very interesting. So, I mean, this is a, a really, I guess, a, a very intriguing bio to me. You know, obviously, you're an attorney. i just plugged everybody who got selected into Google. And some of your work that came up is, um, I think, fair to say, in the political realm. I mean, you're you're doing a lot of work that I think is tied closely to some of the stuff that we've covered in Tangle. Can you tell me a little bit about what kind of work you do and what kind of law you practice? Yeah. So I handle a number of different things, but you know, probably a lot of the stuff that I practice, or especially stuff that you run across, would be um, you know, on the issue of parental rights. Uh, defending families, parental rights, defending defending families who are falsely accused of child abuse or neglect, and CPS investigations and things like that. And I also do work on the self defense rights front and uh, involved with, you know, legislation, drafting legislation, and analyzing stuff related to gun rights and other self defense rights. And then a, a big part of my work over the past several years has become about you know abolishing abortion. So on the anti-abortion front, uh, kind of part, part of the abolitionist movement and legislation and other activities on that front. Got it. So, um, you know, the I, I guess let's start with the the first part of that. Um, you know, there's there's a lot there and all those things. I mean, what kind of cases do you run into? I, I, I'm obviously parents being falsely accused of child abuse or neglect. I mean, that I can't imagine anything really more horrifying than your your children being unjustly taken from you by the the government or CPS or whoever. I mean, when when people come to you, what kinds of situations are they in? Yeah, you know, I mean on this particular issue, you know, the kind of the other things I get involved in may be a little more kind of partisan, I guess, or the parties may be pretty clear where they stand. You know, on this issue, you know, it's kind of a bipartisan issue. That uh, everyone believes that you know there's there's some problems with our job protection services system. There need to be reforms. There's you know too much intrusion, or there's children that are removed that shouldn't be, or they're removed and, and then they're not properly cared for in the foster system and things like that. And so you know so that's where I spend a lot of my work. Over 90% of reports across the country made to job protection services are ultimately deemed unfounded. Over 80% of the actual investigations are deemed unfounded. So we have lots of families, the, you know, the vast, vast majority of investigations happening and the families being investigated are ultimately not, not guilty of any kind of abuse or neglect. And so CPS spends a lot of time there, but you know, for those families, for those 80% of families in those investigations, you know, it can be very traumatic that you have someone investigating you, second guessing your parenting decisions, and, um, you know, maybe it was just a misunderstanding or maybe there was just some kind of an accident. And because of maybe various laws like mandatory reporting laws or maybe because of just kind of a general you know, desire to protect ourselves um, and kind of, hey, when in doubt, go ahead and report. You know, these families find themselves in these situations where they're having to deal with a, you know, investigation of their family. Wow, that is a startling statistic. 80% of the investigations are found to be unfounded. 90% of the reports are unfounded. Did, I mean, how, how does that happen? Is that 
people doing it, you know, in a vengeful fashion to try and gain custody of kids from an ex or something? I mean, what's like a common thread there that that's happening so frequently? That's definitely part of it. The three top sources of reports are law enforcement, school personnel, and the medical community, all of which are mandatory reporters in every single state. So you have, a, you know, a lot of it's just kind of basic, you know, desire, hey, you know, see something, say something, let's go ahead and report, when in doubt, let's go ahead and report this. And, and that's kind of how it is for all crime, right? But in this particular arena, we, it's not just a kind of natural inclination to report things, but there's also mandatory reporting. So we, as a result of that, we have lawyers, you know, who are telling hospitals and doctors, hey, even if you don't have a suspicion of abuse or neglect, go ahead and report if it's a certain kind of uh, break, you know, oblique fracture or spiral fracture, or if it's a more than one recent injury, or if it's a suspected head injury of an infant. Uh, like I had one case that a mother was walking, you know, with her children at the park and was holding their uh, eight-month-old and was walking along and she slipped on some gravel and fell and cradled her baby and he was pretty sure that the baby didn't hit his head, but she just wanted to be sure. So she went to the hospital, got him checked out, and the hospital said, no, your baby's fine. Everything's great, but we are reporting this to Child Protective Services. She's like, well, wh- why? Do you think I did something? They're like, no, we think you you did everything right. You know, you protected your baby, brought him in, got him checked out. Well, then why are you reporting me? Like, well, we have a policy here that if a child has, if, if an, it, someone under two years old has a suspected head injury, then that's an automatic report to CPS. Like, yeah, but you ruled out a head injury. Like, yeah, but it was a suspected head injury. Wow. And so that ends up turning into turning into investigation that they didn't have to deal with. And so there's a lot of that, you know, and, and just kind of liability protection going on there. But then also, like you said, you also have like, you know, vengeful exes that absolutely will use child protective services as a tool to harass each other. You'll even have neighbors do stuff like this. You know, I've seen cases where I've seen this multiple times where you have a neighbors that get into some kind of dispute and someone will, you know, kind of one of those like, wow, that escalated quickly situations where they'll like, all right, well, I'm just going to call CPS on you, uh, even though they don't have any reason to believe they're abusing or neglecting their children. That's just their trump card that they they play. And because not only is it, is it a mandatory report thing, but if you report, you have immunity. Uh, both criminal and civil immunity, unless they can prove that you did it maliciously, which I still haven't seen that prosecuted. Um, so it's it's almost carte blanche to just make false accusations against people. And then that's how you get to these, you know, 80, 90 percent cases unfounded. Wow, that is a really wild world. So so how did you get into that work? I mean, you went to law school and this was like a an area that kind of caught your eye. Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, I've always cared about parental rights and, and parents having the freedom to, to raise their children and, and then seeing, you know, seeing some cases, not, not any real personal, but it's kind of seeing them from a distance, some cases where, you know, things didn't go well and people didn't have good representation and, um, you know, things really just got out of hand, uh, was just a, you know, I thought, you know what, I really like to help people. I really like to serve families and um, help people navigate these situations to, to help clear their name and, and make sure they can hold on to their children if they haven't done anything wrong. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I, I, I guess this sort of shows my uh, immersion in the political punditry. But when I saw your form and saw the pro-parental rights thing, I mean, my initial thought was, 
kind of like the don't say gay legislation, the quote unquote, don't say gay legislation in Florida, or like a lot of the stuff that's happening in public schools. Do you feel like that sort of encompasses that world as well too? Because it seems to me just from this description, you're like, Explicit. I mean, this is like a very direct in the most like legal sense, you're defending the rights of parents to keep their children. But um, have you found yourself sort of operating in, in this other world now that I think is this sort of new school board parental rights with their kids in public school kind of movement that we've been seeing in the political space the last couple of years? I really haven't done much in, in that area. I mean, that's something I, I care about as much as the next person. But but that hasn't really been you know a big part of my practice now. Got it. Okay. So well, let's let's talk about that a little bit. I mean, you um you have you know you yourself are homeschooled. You've decided to homeschool your ten kids, which is I mean you basically <laughs> I guess you have a classroom at home, so they're getting plenty of uh, social interaction. What's the what's the decision like that for you? Um, you know, I imagine. You're you're obviously a, a conservative person. You're living in a fairly conservative place. Why not send your kids to public school? You know, I mean, ultimately, it comes back to my faith. I'm a Christian. I think that it's first and foremost parents' responsibilities to take care of their of their children's education. Kind of coming back to Deuteronomy six, you know, that teach these things to your children as you walk along, as you rise up, as you lie down, as you walk along the way. You know these. Parents, the primary responsibility to educate children belongs to parents. And so I kind of start with that presumption, you know, and then there's not a whole lot going on in our public school system that, that I find super attractive. I mean, having been homeschooled myself, you know, I'm super grateful for my parents doing that for me and provided a lot of freedom, uh, a lot more time with my parents and my brother. And um, I'm super grateful for that. A lot more flexibility. And also just a lot more freedom for me personally, as far as choosing, you know, what to study. I remember when my when I was about 12 years old, my mom said, uh, okay, you have to do math and you have to do English because those are going to be on the SAT someday. But other than that, you can study anything else you want as long as I approve of it. And so I said, well, I, I mean, I love history. So you know, they had homeschool curriculum fairs. This was like in 94. Not a lot of those. There's way more of them now. But, you know, I'd just go go in there and pick out books that I liked and show my mom. She'd be like, OK, it looks good. And so, you know, so I could, you know, I'd study the math and the English. And I'd already had a foundation on a lot of other subjects up to that point. But then I could really explore the things that I was interested in. And for a long time, that was architecture. I really enjoyed that. But then when I was about 16, that's whenever I decided, kind of developed an interest in the law. And kind of did more studying in that. So, you know, I want to give the same kind of freedom to my children and um, give them, a, you know, time with their siblings, time with their mom and I. And uh, homeschooling allows us to do that. It's really interesting. I mean, I, you know, as somebody who went to public school, I, I mean, I don't even now I'm thinking I'm trying to rack my brain. Like if I know anybody who I grew up with, who is homeschooled and nobody comes to mind. I'm sure I know people, you know, in my, my work life and my kind of adult social life who are homeschooled and I just don't know about it. But what was the, I, I guess now for your kids, what's that process look like? I mean, how do you and, and your wife manage the duties of teaching them? You obviously have a full-time job as an attorney, 
you know, you guys go through the process of deciding what books they're going to learn from and you flesh out a curriculum for them for, you know, the age that they're at. I mean, that seems like a huge amount of work. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) it is. uh, But I mean, this is my life. You know, my children are, are I'm an attorney and that's my vocation. But my children are a way higher priority, you know, than that. And so I don't know that my time directly reflects that. But but I think it should, you know, try to make our time reflect what our true priorities are. And so, yeah, my, my wife, she does pretty much everything for the younger children as far as teaching reading and math, arithmetic and, you know, kind of all your basic stuff. And then our older children, I've kind of taken on the past couple of years, kind of their education and the math and you know writing and uh, and then other subjects. And, you know, the other great thing about homeschooling is that Every child is different. Every child goes at a different speed. Every child has different interests and strengths and weaknesses. And so we're able to you know, adapt what we're doing to each one of them. And so far, it's working well. You know, one of the things that uh, stuck out, I think, a little bit about both your work and your form is obviously with your religious background, you're pretty passionate about um, the issue of abortion. And you had in your bio, one of the bios I saw for kind of like, you know, your law and your practice online that uh, one of your goals is to abolish abortion, I think nationally, but certainly in the state of Texas. Obviously, Roe v. Wade, you know, has fallen. There's been a ton of movement in this space in the last year or two. I'm curious if you could tell me a little bit about your work in that space, you know, how how you're hoping to accomplish a goal like that, that I I think is a really huge monumental task. Um, You know, what, what, that's quite aspirational. What, what's that look like for you uh, in, in your work? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, it's countercultural, you know, in, in our society, at least where we're at right now. And, um, you know, it's also something that, you know, it's got to be God who does it. But uh, I believe that I've got a duty to, to speak up for those who can't speak for themselves and to rescue those who are being carried to the slaughter, as Proverbs 21 or 24 says. So, you know, I, I believe I have a duty to do what I can and then trust God with that. But, you know, I got involved. I've always been you know, I'm a pro-life, my parents were pro-life, but then a number of years ago, I really kind of, you know, troubled by some inconsistencies I saw in the general kind of political pro-life movement, pro-life politicians, establishment pro-life organizations. And, and ultimately, I now call myself an abolitionist. And we started this organization called Abolish Abortion Texas here in 2016. And we've been able to make some progress here, not any, you know, not any legislation passed, but as far as just culturally, We've been able to make some progress here, and then that's then taken me beyond Texas, doing work, you know, helping with other states, and ultimately, even in the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe versus Wade, I had the privilege of being an attorney who submitted a uh, amicus brief in that case on behalf of 21 organizations and 20 um, state legislators who signed on to that, you know, arguing, you know, that the court should overturn Roe, and also arguing that the court should go further. And that, you know, that a fetus is a person under the 14th Amendment, which says no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Well, then what are the laws that protect born people? Well, those should be the same laws that protect people before they're born. Uh, that's what we believe. And um, that's what equal protection means. That's, you know, that's what abolitionists stand for. 
Uh, the court obviously didn't go there, and I'm sure it would have caused way more uproar culturally if they had. But I still think it was the right thing to do constitutionally. And uh, so we're going to keep fighting for that, uh, both at the court, in the states, and at the federal level as well. So, I, I, I mean, there's a lot I want to pick at there. But I guess my the, th- the one of the first things you said that sort of um, perked my ears up is kind of the inconsistencies you've seen in the abortion movement, the anti-abortion movement. I'm curious what you mean by that. I mean, what what were you seeing from people that you thought were kind of on your team that that frustrated you a bit? Well, you know, a lot of the rhetoric of, of the pro-life movement, you know, for the last 49, you know, 50 years next month since Roe was decided, you know, has been a fetus is a person and that Roe versus Wade is unconstitutional. Uh, well, now, at this point, even the Supreme Court says Roe versus Wade is unconstitutional. So on the fetus is a person front, you know, that's kind of been what the pro-life movement has said. However, when you actually, you know, look at the legislation that's being passed, uh, that's being introduced and, and pushed around the country uh, by pro-life organizations, by pro-life politicians, it doesn't actually treat a fetus like they're a person, right? It, it says, okay, if you, if you make it to 20, if you survive to 20 weeks gestation, Okay, at that point, we'll give you some protections, but still not the same protections as if you survive all the way until birth. And then there's always a carve out for the mothers to say, okay, well, you, you have, you know, you have basically legal right to cause the death of your unborn child up till the moment of birth, because we write into every single pro-life bill an exception that whether it be a partial birth abortion ban, a dismemberment bill, heartbeat bill. Whatever it is, we always write into it says, you know, except for the mother. And we explicitly exclude that mothers from any sort of liability whatsoever, you know, for the part that they play in the abortion. And that's not what we do for born people, right? That's not how we treat born persons. That's kind of the inconsistency that I saw that we say a fetus is a person, but we don't act like it. And the Supreme Court actually pointed this out actually in Roe in 1973. They actually pointed out then because we were arguing that, hey, a fetus is a person. And in fact, it, it was Texas assistant attorney general that was arguing, hey, a fetus is a person. So it's entitled to 14th Amendment protection. And the court ba- basically pointed out, wait a second, if if that's true, then your own current laws don't provide equal protection. Even in 1973, we weren't providing equal protection. So actions speak louder than words. So you're not treating them like a person. So we're not either. So that was actually a big part of how we got Roe in the first place. And the court actually said, you go read this in the Roe decision. They said, um, you know, in arguing that a fetus is a person, Texas faces a dilemma. If a fetus is a person, why is the mother not a principal or an accomplice? If the fetus is a person, why are the penalties different? Because it was a two to five year penalty for killing a person in the womb. Whereas, you know, it could be up to life or even capital punishment for killing a person outside of the womb, depending on intent and all that. You know, that's a big part of the inconsistency that, yes, feels like we've been talking out of our both sides of our mouth for 50 years that a fetus is a person, but none of the bills that we're actually putting forward actually treat them that way. So I'm curious. I mean, obviously, I you read Tangle, so you, you know that this is a, an area that we have disagreement on sure from from your perspective i mean a, a fetus is from the moment of conception then right 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 from the moment of fertilization or 
conception. Some people use those terms differently, but I use them as synonyms. So does that mean that you have, I guess, an opposition to, you know, the kinds of birth controls that are have the possibility of stopping a fertilization from happening or, or terminating a fertilization immediately after it happens, things like Plan B and some of the other birth control pills that we've seen sort of popularized in recent years? Uh, yes and no. You know, I'm not against um, the actual substances. I don't think we should be regulating the substances that way. I think really it's an issue of, you know, how are these substances being used? What is the intent in using them? And so, yes, if someone is intentionally, you know, using a substance in order to destroy a human being that's already, you know, after fertilization, then yeah, I think that that use should be, um, should be criminalized. You know, obviously every case is going to be, have to be decided on a case by case basis. So it's not, you know, it's not some, um, one size fits all response to that. But as far as what should the law be, the law should be that that person from the moment of fertilization is protected by the same laws protecting everybody else. I'm curious if you feel like like your your position is radical because I think a lot of the country like to your to your point I mean a lot of the country I think would view it that way. I'm sure many of Tangle listeners would view it that way. Obviously what you're experiencing even in the pro-life movement is that some people view it that way because they don't want to go down this path of criminalizing, you know, women who get abortions or criminalizing the the act of abortion. Many of the sort of pro-life bills that are out there are focused on the medical providers and limiting it through other means. I mean, do you feel that way about yourself? I mean, how do you place yourself on this spectrum of, you know, anti-abortion activists? You know, I mean, in some ways, every human rights reform has, you know, has started with the the people being called radicals, right? So being called that is neither here nor there. It's really what is consistent, what's the right thing to do, what's moral, what's biblical, and um, what is loving my neighbor as myself. Uh, what is doing unto others as I would have them do unto me? What laws would I want protecting me now in my life? Well, then, if I truly love my neighbor, my freeborn neighbor, then I should want the same laws to protect them. And and it's also not just even for the protection of the baby; it's also for the women, because mothers, because abortion is not treated as homicide right now under our existing laws. You know, there's something like, and this is kind of old data, maybe 18 years old. There was a study that said something like 64% of women, you know, who have abortions indicate that they felt pressured by somebody else. Now, again, they're not saying someone had a gun to their head, but, you know, they they feel pressure from somebody else. Well, you know, if you were to um, abolish abortion by providing equal protection, treating it as homicide, equal protection of the laws, then it would actually be illegal to pressure someone into getting one or even to encourage someone to get one. You know, if there's people saying, Hey, all these mothers are being pressured into it. Yeah. I mean, I think it should be illegal to pressure someone into doing, into committing homicide. So it even protects women from, you know, from those who would try to pressure them into these things. So I guess what, how do you square this with, I mean, the obvious pro-choice argument, like the 900 pound elephant in the room is, well, there's a ton of them, I guess, but the <laughs> the first one that comes to mind is that, you know, there are a lot of scenarios where women are getting abortions out of, 
you know, concern for their own health because they have genuinely dangerous pregnancies. Um, I know there's a ton of really interesting stuff happening in the kind of pro-choice space around reframing abortion as self-defense for some women and trying to fight it in court on those grounds because, you know, I, I know women who have had incredibly complicated, dangerous, life-threatening complications from pregnancy before and after birth. And when you talk about banning abortion and make criminalizing it and making it, you know, equivalent to homicide, I think it puts a lot of women at, at risk immediately. And, and we're seeing that play out, I think, in some states right now that have banned abortion where there's a lot of horror stories coming out. I mean, how does somebody like you navigate those things if, you know, you have that the care in mind for the women as well? Yeah, absolutely. No, and I had, I mean, those are very tragic you know, situations. And, um, and, and that's not what we're talking about at all, as far as, you know, banning access to medical care, you know, for those kind of life threatening medical emergencies, ectopic pregnancies, things like that. Um, that's something that, you know, the, really the law already has in place. Pardon me if I use some legalese here, but you know, what, what's called the, the doctrine of necessity that really allows for dealing with those situations. And, um, you know, kind of provide the justification in the event of those situations. And even in the bills that I write, we explicitly write that in, you know, if it's not already in the law or sometimes even when it is, you know, that that's not something, you know, that that can be prosecuted. Nobody's really counts that as abortion, maybe from a medical terminology perspective that may be still considered an abortion. But that's not really what people are, you know, what we're trying to stop. Okay, but I mean, I guess, you know, if. In a world where abortions are banned and, you know, they're they're put on equal footing as something like homicide or murder, I mean, there's going to be a natural deterrence for doctors to provide that medical care because, you know, they're, make, they're already making extremely complicated decisions about the threshold for, you know, a threat to a mother's life or health. I mean, the, the thing that we're seeing right now is that those doctors are scared to take action because they're scared of being prosecuted under some of the laws that have been put into place. I mean, that I, I, I fundamentally, I think that's kind of the the objection to this. So dr drafting laws, I mean, the to to address that, it it's hard for me. I mean, th this is one of the things that I really struggle with with. Um, a lot of my conservative friends on this specific issue, because there's so much about conservatism that I think sort of vouches for this kind of limited government ideal that like there are so many places in our world where conservatives say, you know, the the people who are responsible for this, for, for their day to day lives, living these things out are the ones that get priority in deciding how these decisions are going to be made. I mean, you homeschooling your kids is a great example. You know, they're, you're not going to court for truancy that you've decided that you're going to homeschool your kids. The government's not compelling you to do that. You've decided that's the best thing for them. I mean, it seems inconsistent to me to say that we could draft laws that are having the real world impact right now of kind of scaring away the the care that women need. I mean, you know, I, again, I think there's a lot of different reasons for me that I struggle with some of the pro-life stuff, but just specific to this narrow conversation we're having, that that seems like a 
a pretty big contradiction. I mean, what what makes you think that the government can successfully abolish or ban something like that in a way that won't result in so much, you know, danger, I think, for for pregnant women across the country? Yeah, well, you said a few things. I'm going to try to try to hit them and you can bring me back if I miss anything. You know, I think that as far as the stories that, you know, that we may be hearing about doctors denying care and things like that, I really question, you know, the, you know, how genuine those are um, and what's really going on there. Um, I'm, as, as, as I know you do as well, you know, sometimes you, the facts that you read in, in the news aren't always what they seem. Not that people are necessarily promoting misinformation, but, you know, there's a lot of times there's a rush to a story without really being able to know all the facts. And a lot of times in these cases, because of HIPAA laws and things like that, you'll never know all the facts. You know, so you should just kind of go in with what you have. So I, I really question that because, first of all, none of the laws that they're talking about in any way hamstring doctors from providing care to women, you know, who are true in true health emergencies. Um, so there's that. And then secondly, there's pressures the other direction, right? Not only are there laws that require doctors to provide care for emergency situations, but there's also liability that comes from you know refusing to handle situations and um and if harm comes to the mother now that doctor's civilly liable or potentially even criminally liable you know for her death or for harm to her i think when you're dealing with life and death uh i think it's good for there to be some tensions and some pressures to do the right thing but i think those are already there as far as protecting the mother's life and i think there should be more there protecting the life of the child and in the legislation that I've been involved with drafting, you know, we it's been there. So I understand people are in difficult situations, but I, I really think that the, you know, the few stories that we've heard, I don't know, I, I, I doubt the genuine, how, how genuine they are in those situations. One, one other thing that you said about limited government, because I'm certainly, you know, for limited government, I think government has a defined role that should stay in. That said, I'm not an anarchist. I do believe in government. And I believe that the most fundamental function of government is civil and criminal justice. And the most important justice is on the issue of, of homicide, right? Protecting people who've been, who have been wrongfully killed um, or protecting people from being wrongfully killed. I think that is the primary function of government. Uh, there's lots of other things government does, but if it's not doing that, then it's you know, failing at its most basic function. Interesting. So, I mean, I guess sort of related to that, you know, I, I'm as you're talking, I'm trying to take some of this to like, to, to me, the logical end, you know, I mean, treating like, like fetal personhood. I mean, we've written a little bit about this in Tangle, but like, that means a woman, say a pregnant woman commits a crime. Can you put her in jail knowing that you're now imprisoning the fetus that's innocent? I mean, that creates an interesting moral conundrum. Like you're depriving a, a fetus of its rights because of the the crime of the mother. I mean, I, I don't see any way we can reasonably separate the the fetus from the mom. You know, obviously we've defined viability as like the point that we're doing that now. What about a situation like that? I mean, how do you navigate that? Isn't that just like an, an sort of the the obvious proof that we have 
that there is there is a difference between you know a mother and and a fetus. I mean that we can't really take the two of them apart. Well, I mean, in in that scenario, obviously, if you know the fetus is inside the mother and the mother goes to prison, obviously the it, it, you know no one the fetus is not going to want to be separated from the mother because that means death. And so, uh, I don't know that that's a particularly difficult ethical conundrum there. That yeah, I mean the 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 baby should be with the baby's mother, and you know then once the baby's born, then you know at that point it becomes a different question, and that is you know what does our criminal justice system think about infants being with their mothers you know in institutions, and that that's kind of a totally separate question. But as far as the the life of that child, yeah, I mean there's nothing about the mother committing a crime that should in any way condemn the child to be separated from their mother, you know, to this, to the point that it causes the death of the child. Well, I mean, I, I guess I, I actually find it more complicated. I mean, I, I assuming, assuming that, you know, I think maybe, I, I don't know, maybe you don't agree with this, but I, I think I can make a pretty good argument that the living conditions inside, you know, a federal or state prison are much different than the ones inside, uh, you know, most most homes in America, and are, are are much worse, right? So if we're if we're starting from that point, a mother commits a crime, she's pregnant, and we condemn the child to the living conditions inside the prison. The you know deprive them of certain medical care that again the other side deprive them of the kind of diet a fetus. I mean. If you're going to take fetal personhood to its logical end, to me, I think that does create a problem where I would argue that we can't imprison pregnant women because we can't we can't deprive the fetus of the kind of, you know, the accessibility of care and the living conditions that it would have if its mother was not behind bars, not in prison, not subject to potential, you know, abuse, violence, all the things that we know happen in our prison system. Yeah. Well, and again, I, I mean, that's, that's something to be considered, you know, should pregnant mothers, you know, begin their sentences until they've had their, their babies. That's, that's a, something interesting to consider. I mean, maybe they shouldn't, but I think that's a separate question from should anyone, the mother or anybody else have the ability to end the life of this child. But yeah, I mean, I agree that they should still be able to have proper care and nutrition and uh protection because again i'm 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 all about following what jesus says loving our neighbor as ourselves and so yeah that means the baby that means the mother that means the mother even if she's you know convicted of a crime we still love her as ourselves and provide justice but do it in a way that's you know humane and that cares for both her and her baby specifically do you run into like in your day-to-day i guess like a lot of the opposition from the pro-choice side and i don't know like what do those interactions look like for you are you actively trying to change the minds of some of the the political opposition that you're you guys face or are you sort of like you know we have to get the pro-life side on on our playing field first since as you said you know you've from your perspective, there's a lot of inconsistencies there that that you feel like you know the guys who are supposed to be on my team aren't even quite on my team yet. <laughs> right. All of the above, 
we certainly, you know, want to convince people um, who disagree with us of the reasonableness and soundness of our positions. And we believe it's logical, logical, biblical, legal. Actually, even, even in, in 38 states today, uh, we already have, we have fetal homicide laws in 38 states. You know, many of those states are pro-abortion states. Um, but still, we believe, you know, that we've all agreed that we should be protecting fetuses. Uh, now, some, you know, we may disagree about whether they're persons or not, but we all agree they should be protected. You, you know, so we have some agreement there. You, you know, we we have agreements um, kind of with a lot of the folks on the pro-abortion side on the issue of mothers uh, or women being, you know, free moral agents that, Generally speaking, although there are people who are forced into situations and things like that, that obviously shouldn't be liable, you know, if someone's forcing them to do something, but the, but that most women are free moral agents, they're strong, they're capable of making decisions for themselves, they should be held accountable for their own decisions, and um, we have a lot of agreement there. You know, then kind of the, on the pro-life side, we, we, uh, we have agreement there with a lot number of people as far as life begins at fertilization, but then we have disagreements about, okay, now let's act like life begins at fertilization by treating it like we treat born people with the same laws protecting them. So we're, we're kind of, you know, fighting on multiple front, fronts and uh, have a lot of people to convince. And, you know, it's certainly an uphill battle, to put it mildly. But, uh, but we believe it's ultimately the, the uh, consistent thing to do. You know, we've, we've been meeting with a lot of success and progress, at least as far as the direction, although you know, granted, we're still a long ways from abolishing abortion in any state, much less the entire country. I, I'm struck by it. I mean, I think it's so fascinating that the the calculus in some of this, like the worldview, the perspective that you're bringing forward is that you feel like you're genuinely increasing the choice for for women. Because to me, it seems like the logic you're applying is almost the exact argument I would put forward for why we shouldn't ban abortion, which is like, we want to provide a free moral ethic to women, allow them to make these choices for themselves when like there are two choices to have an abortion or not. And you're proposing putting up a barrier to one of the two choices. I mean, you're cutting them in, in half. How, how does that fit? Yeah. Well, and I, I hope I didn't, maybe I, maybe I wasn't clear. I'm not saying that we're expanding the choices, no, we're certainly taking away a choice as far as legally, but what we are doing um, as abolitionists that I think a lot of the pro-life organizations don't do is that we're treating women like they're free moral agents. You know, we're not we're not writing exceptions for them that treat them as if they are don't know what they're doing or that they're incapable of making decisions for themselves by you know creating this entire exception to abortion for them, which ends up resulting in. You know, I think there's 12 states, 11 or 12 states today after Dobbs now and after some time after that, trigger bills that went to effect, pre-roll laws. I think there's 11 or 12 states that, you know, where um, clinic abortions are generally outlawed. And yet in every single one of those states, with the exception of maybe one of them, you know, self-induced abortion or self-managed abortion is still 100 percent legal. And so I'm sure, you know, you've you've read and you've seen uh, it's been a number of articles in The New York Times and elsewhere about how that's exploding. And, um, and so you're seeing that uh, on the rise, in fact, almost replacing the numbers um, that are being uh, saved by you know the decrease in the clinic abortions. You know, we're not just trying to force women into do it yourself abortions by making that the only form of legal abortion. 
you know, we're trying to protect everybody with the same laws, um, give everybody the same due process as well. And every case be considered on a case by case basis by law enforcement, grand juries, judges, juries, prosecutors, you know, appellate courts, the governor who can pardon or commute sentences, all the whole justice system, you know, should consider each case and, and treat each person, you know, according to their own circumstances. But what the, where the pro-life movement has been for 50 years is saying, no carte blanche, every mother should get a pass regarding her own culpability and her own abortion, in, in their words, because every woman is a victim. And I don't agree with that. I think it's insulting to women. Even a lot of the pro-abortion women I've, I've you know, communicated with think that that's insulting. So that's why I say you know, that, at least in that area, we have agreement that women are free moral agents. We just disagree that they should have the freedom to make this particular decision. I'm curious, given like this, you know, your your whole set of um, kind of conservative Christian views, how you're feeling about the state of the Republican Party and the conservative movement right now and, you know, in 2022 as we stand. I mean, you look around or there. Do you feel like the party's headed in the right direction? Are you supportive of Republicans? I mean, what's like your, how do you feel politically these days? Because like you said, I mean, I think there's, there's a lot of different brands of conservatism that are out there right now. And in my mind, listening to you talk, I imagine there's a few of them that aren't particularly appealing to you, even though it seems like you would, on the surface, you know, stand much more on the right side of the aisle than the left. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I, I vote Republican and the Republican Party platform, at least at the state level, you know, I think is really, really good. Uh, obviously, there's a big difference in both parties between the platform and then the politicians and what they actually do once they get into office. I think as a whole, the direction of the Republican Party, you know, across the country is is not good. I, th- I think it's, you know, going a bad direction, both in terms of our standards for our own candidates. And also in terms of our consistency to our own principles, you know, a lot of times Republicans, even when they win and get into office, they don't actually govern like they promised that they would when campaigning. And again, I know this is this human nature period and both parties, you know, I'm sure complain of the same thing, but, um, but I think more so with conservatives and even the term conservative, uh, I think is a, you know, not a great term because it's, it's like, you know, we take five steps the wrong direction and, we're conservative because we take one step back uh, or we're conservative because we take, we just stop taking more directions. That's the wrong direction uh, instead of actually retaking ground and taking things the opposite direction. Uh, in some ways, I think we need to stop conserving and we need to start actually advancing our policies. But, you know, politicians are great at saying things and not following through with them. That's true on both sides. I'm curious if you've changed your mind about any of your political positions in the last few years or or maybe if Tangle has influenced your your mindset on anything we've covered because obviously you know specific to the abortion issue we've we've written a lot you know I think you and I probably have a lot more common ground on things like religious rights and gun rights but yeah I'm I'm curious like if you've had any kind of political evolution throughout your career or you've gone into situations where like you had a, a particular view and something you experienced or read or whatever kind of changed your mind on or if maybe the views you hold now are actually new to you and and a change from, you know, some aspects of how you saw the world before. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's going to be hard for me to 
to think about anything specific, but um, yeah, certainly my views across my lifetime, there's some of them that are, you know, have not changed. There's some of them that have changed in the sense that they've just gotten deeper. Uh, but there's, there's others that have changed. I, I wish I could, <laughs> could give you a soundbite that, you know, Tangled was, was fundamental and, you know, in changing one of those in a certain direction. Um, but I, I can't think of anything right off, but I, I think what Tangled has done, you know, is really given me more perspective and helped me to understand, you know, different sides and also just to, you know, learn about news that I may not have, you know, may not have been my particular interests or my particular area, but something that you, you know, brought to the fore and talked about and did a deep dive on that I, you know, really appreciated. So, yeah, I can't point to anything specific, but Tangled's certainly been, uh, been really helpful. Yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 I appreciate that. I, I honestly wasn't intending to kind of like key up a softball for a soundbite, though. That would have been <laughs> awesome. Uh, I, I really, I, well, there you yeah, go. I, I, I genuinely asked because it's so, it's so interesting to me to talk to people who are really passionate about these kinds of issues. And I'm just always fascinated if, if it's life experience, if it's, you know, the environment someone grew up in, if it's like a major event that happened to them, that sort of defines a lot of their political views. And I think that's really, that that's kind of what I was interested in scratching at. I mean, you know, cause for me, I know it's like such a, like the, the things that I'm like really, really partisan and really, really, you know, really care about are issues that, I've probably experienced personally, like they've impacted somebody I love in a really deeper, profound way. And so I, I was, I was more interested if, like, you know, there's some of these views that you came to, if they came to you later in life because of the experiences you've had. If you know, obviously, I assume having ten kids and going through pregnancy in that way has played a huge role in some of the more pro-life stances. I can imagine how an experience like that would be really profound. Yeah. You know, also I, I, I should say too, just to compliment you. I mean, I'm again, like I, uh, there's clearly places we disagree, but I appreciate the fact that you're, you know, you've been sticking around Tangle for a while and, and read, I mean, listening to you talk, I'm like, Oh, I've probably written some stuff that would piss this guy off. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really, really grateful and appreciative of readers who are, you know, open-minded and open-hearted enough to kind of, to stick it out and and stay on our mailing list and keep reading the newsletter even through those kinds of issues because I do think that's a that's something not a lot of Americans do right now and I, I think it's it's really it's been a really big growth experience for me but um, it's really cool to sort of talk to somebody who I know has had to go through that too on on your end yeah well and I I appreciate that you know I'm I'm a Christian and I try to really get my views on things from the Bible and from what God says you know the best that I understand it not that I always understand it perfectly by any means and I'm certainly growing in that way you know and then also you know that is my foundation but then I, I'm, I'm always learning I always want to stay humble I want to be finding out what's really going on as a lawyer it's my tendency to not take things at face value and to want to dig deeper and there's a, so there's a number of issues out there that I may just not even have an opinion on because I feel like I don't have enough information. I try to reserve judgment, which I think is a lost art in, in our society. You know, like, hey, let's wait till facts develop before we actually decide what we think about this. So, I, you know, I try to do that. 
And also, you know, I try not to take my talking points from the general media, whether it be conservative or otherwise. You know, I, I definitely have some views that would be kind of maybe out of step with general Republican political talking points. You know, I'm I'm for border security, but hey, I think we should be encouraging immigration, you know, more the merrier. You know, I, I think the Bible has a lot to say about that. But I'm also I'm for criminal justice, but I'm also for criminal justice reform. I think the way that we treat you know, prisoners and things like that in this country is really important and um, reflects who we are. On a number of different issues, I, I probably may fall in different areas of the, the ideological map. Um, and I think that's, yeah, I think that's where we should all be is not taking our talking points from any particular party or politician or, or media outlet. But, you know, but really going back to our fundamental philosophy for me is, you know, what does God say? And then go from there. Um, so that's what I try to do. Bradley Pierce, listen, uh, this has been awesome. I appreciate you giving me your time. I know we're we're just over an hour here. And I mean, I could talk about some of this stuff forever. And, you know, I'm sorry to put you in the the, the abortion hot seat there for 30 minutes. I mean, <laughs> it, again, it's a it's it's a really unique opportunity to sort of have these conversations and, and the debates a little bit in real time. Before we go, I'm trying to give people an opportunity. You know, I'm I'm sitting here grilling you about your your life and making you tally off all ten names of your kids. <laughs> I want I want to give you a chance. You know, if there's anything A you want to ask me or B, um, you know, any message to the folks who are who are listening and and reading Tangle, you've got a chance in front of an audience here. And uh, yeah, the floor is yours for a few minutes. Well, if you're gonna let me put you on the spot, uh, I may I may ask you a question. And that is, you know, we all come to life and, you know, these things that we encounter in the world with our own kind of worldview and fundamental principles that we, that are our starting points for, you know, deciding what we think about things and in every tangled, you know, or virtually everyone, you know, you kind of give your take on things. Obviously, this could be a much, <laughs> you could spend forever answering this question, but my question is, how would you describe your fundamental principles? Or how you, you know, what what your worldview is, and what what lenses you look at things through. What's your, I guess, life philosophy in that way? Wow, yeah, that is a really interesting question. Um, shoot, I should not have done this. This is a bad idea. <laughs> uh, no, it's a great, it's a great question. I mean, look, I think first of all, I think fundamentally, I think Tangle comes from a place of compassion and um empathy and i think that is really critical to my worldview and i i imagine there are a lot of people who hear that and think you know that automatically puts me on like the the left side of the spectrum uh because i think the you know liberals in america today are kind of framed as being like the you know hippy dippy worried about everybody's feelings and safe spaces and all that stuff and and i really mean it in the genuine sense of the term that like people come to their beliefs and their viewpoints through their lived experiences and their upbringing and I am really, really passionate about the fact that like, we have to respect the views that people have because everybody comes to them honestly. Nobody believes something because they think it's wrong or stupid or it's going to... I mean, some people I'm sure believe things because they want to because it advances a certain life goal or world worldview for them. But 
most of us, the vast majority of all of our beliefs and principles and the things that you're asking me about, I think, come from a place of the experiences that we have paired with the upbringing that we have and then the information that we're taking in. And so I try to lead with with that kind of just empathy, even especially towards the people who I really disagree with, which is like, you know, they have this this genuine belief and there are reasons behind the belief and I need to give you know, space in myself to to hear those reasons and to give them like an honest chance. So I think that's really primary for me. In terms of my political and, and governmental worldview, I mean, look, I I think that America is a really, really beautiful, broken, totally perfect ideal that has been executed in a really, really sloppy way. And I'm incredibly grateful to to live in this country and to have grown up here. And I also take the responsibility and the gift of of living here and growing up here really, really seriously in the sense that um, I think we should all take advantage of the freedoms that we have and the ability to criticize our government and the ability to vote and the ability to choose our leaders and many, many things that a lot of people who are you know living across the world right now don't have. And so uh, I, I am simultaneously grateful for the the country that I'm in and also it you know, see all of its flaws and blemishes and, and all those things from, from knowing it pretty intimately, I think. And, uh, I, I really, really feel strongly about, you know, my, the reserving the right to sort of speak honestly and critically about it because, uh, you know, I don't think any political party or politician or idea is off limits for criticism or debate or conversation. And so, you know, those are, those are sort of like the, the guiding principles for me. I, I talk a bit about limited government and some of these things that I think are more conservative, but I also, you know, to your point, I think the government plays a, a really critical role. And um, when the government does things really well, it's awesome because it's like our tax dollars are paying for it. And uh, that makes me feel good about where my money's going. And it, it takes pressure off the kind of private sector that I think is a bit more selfish and capitalistic to have to take care of certain needs that every society has. So it's a balance. It's really complicated. That's a really good question. I don't know if that's a clear answer, but those are the kinds of things I think that, that come to mind for me. Great. Appreciate that. Well, Bradley, thank you. That's, um, I'm going to like, you're, I think you're, you might have just inspired some writing. I'm going to have to like take that question and flesh it all the way out. <laughs> Look, I appreciate you opening up and, and the honesty about your worldviews. I know this conversation, this podcast will, will kick some bushes and get some interesting responses. And I'm curious for those two, but thank you for spending an hour of your day with me. Let's keep in touch. Maybe we'll get to do it again sometime down the road. And again, yeah, I really appreciate you reading Tangle and, and hanging out. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks for your work. And yeah, I'd love to connect more in the future. Awesome. Thanks so much, man. I will talk to you soon. All right. Take care. Our podcast is written by me, Isaac Saul, and edited by Zosha Warpea. Our script is edited by Sean Brady, Ari Weitzman, and Bailey Saul. Shout out to our interns, Audrey Moorhead and Watkins Kelly, and our social media manager, Magdalena Bakova, who created our podcast logo. Music for the podcast was produced by Diet 75. 
For more from Tangle, check out our website at www.newtangle.com.